the incomparable radio theater is coming very, very soon. And now, late model sprint ship division. Time for the four most famous words in racing. Galaxy Scouts, start your engines. Isn't that five words? It's just an expression. Go to theincomparable.com slash radio or search iTunes to subscribe today. The Incomparable, number 264, September 2015. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell. We uh, like to talk about books on this podcast, and we like to talk about nerdy things on this podcast, and we're going to mix it up. We also like sometimes to talk about old things. We're going to put all those together in a bowl (laughs) and spin them around, and what you're going to get is old nerdy books about technology from... The earlier days of technology. This is a really uh, very clever idea for a topic that was brought to us by Lisa Schmeiser herself, who is here. Hi, Lisa. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Yes, well, you you called it, and we made it happen eventually. Yay! So we're going to hear we're, we're here. We're going to talk about um, books such as uh, Hackers, Microsurfs, The Cuckoo's Egg, and Soul of a New Machine. These are books from a, an era where we were all just sort of figuring out about technology, and books were some fictional, some non-fictional, uh, bringing to us this crazy new world of computers and the internet. And uh, some of them are actually, uh, I think all of them are quite fascinating, and some of them are probably worth your time even today. Joining me and Lisa to talk about these nerdy books are some nerdy people, I'm going to say it. What? Uh, David <laughs> Lore is out there. Hello. Hello. I, I will cop to being some nerdy person. Some nerdy person. <laughs> uh, Monty Ashley, also out there, employee of a large technology company, but who's counting? Uh, contractor for a large technology oh, sorry. company. Sorry. <laughs> I'll do All right. You wouldn't be a nerd if you didn't fact check. My contract, contractor, actually, that says it all, doesn't it? That is, yep. that is as 90s... <laughs> As 90s tech industry as possible, <laughs> and as today's. And, uh, uh, you know, I know um, that this person knew Jeff Bezos's mailman's brother. It's Glenn Fleischman. <laughs> Excuse me, it's Bezos. <laughs> See? Oh. He is Jeff Bezos's mailman's brother. I am not mentioned in any of the books, so far as I know, that we're covering tonight. But you were you were you've been present. We've got some people from the uh, from the Seattle uh, technology uh, sphere here. Uh, which is kind of fascinating too. So, so where where should we start? I will admit that I I uh, reread one of these, or, um, skimmed one of these, and haven't read the other two. <laughs> so, well, I've we got... can start by the reason I wanted to do this yes, podcast. Yes, please. Is Opening micro... statement. Sure. The reason I wanted to do this podcast is Microsurfs was published twenty years ago this July, mm. and it was kind of perhaps I'm overstating the cultural impact, but it was kind of like a, a postcard from the 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 future, or rather the future that was being shaped up and down the West Coast and in little tech enclaves all over the place. And um, what I can remember is over the year or two after it was published, everywhere went on the World Wide Web, someone was saying, I want to live in a nerd house like they have in Microsurfs, or they were were saying, I identify with so-and-so from Microsurfs, or I actually was on a date one time with someone who was like, what are your five Jeopardy categories? And I was like, did you get that from Microsurfs? He's like, I got that from Microsurfs. (laughs) So so it was... um, one of those minor works of a cultural canon in the 1990s. And then I got to thinking about what are the other books that um, I knew that got passed around like the engineering departments of startups or made their percolated through, through offices throughout South and market. And ones that came up were things like the, the, the cuckoo's egg by Clifford Stoll hackers by Stephen Levy. Um, 
a friend of mine who is a PhD in electrical engineering said the one that he considers to be the, the urtext of them all is Tracy Kidder's um, The Soul of a New Machine. And so I thought it would be kind of fun to talk about like the tech culture, the tech book canon of the 1990s, like the literature that may have shaped people who worked on Web 1.0 and what books are kind of like, oh, it's an amusing artifact today. And what books are actually pretty handy to read because they were either really prescient or they're a great historical record for explaining the era. All right. I think that I think that's good. I, I'll tell you, in rereading The Cuckoo's Egg, mm-hmm. which I always I always liked. Um, I, I, that took me back, uh, to, to that era. I have, I have lots of opinions about it, but I don't know. I feel like, I feel like maybe <laughs> microsurfs is the place to start here, Lisa, since that was sure. what inspired all of this. And mm-hmm. I have, I haven't read it. I am, I'm in the Lex Friedman role here. I've <laughs> not seen it, not read it. So I'm going to leave it to you all to discuss. This is Douglas Copeland, right? Well, mm-hmm. yeah, this is Douglas. Yeah. Do you do you want basically like a brief? This is what the book is about. Yes, why I think that would be a great place. To start. All right. So, <laughs> in a nutshell, the book is about a group of Microsoft employees who spend, who are, uh, you know, energetic and engaged and, and passionate about their work, but not particularly ambitious and not particularly self aware. And over the course of the book, they all leave Microsoft. They coalesce together to work in a startup. And um, it is about them turning into, they all become real boys and girls, as it were. That's basically the whole arc of the book is it's young adults learn how young adults learn who they are. And what makes it such an uncanny artifact of the time is that Copeland spends a lot of the book trying to meditate the boundaries between um, your offline life versus your your virtual or your online life, because there's a subplot that involves two of the women who work in the company putting together an online coding coding group called Chicks to uh, raise the profile of girls in the tech industry. And um, the book is actually a series of journal entries that the the lead guy, the the lead protagonist makes on, on his computer the whole time. He's under the spell of a genius who seems to be more comfortable interfacing with computers than with people. And another thing Copeland does is he punctuates each chapter with a list of seemingly random words. And he also has the conceit where he introduces everybody by saying, here are, their Jeopardy categ- here are the Jeopardy categories that define them. And what he's also doing is trying to make a point about how culture influences technology and vice versa. And how difficult it can be to figure out who you are if you hide in technology. You have to kind of flip it around and make it something that works for you, not vice versa. Other uh, so so. With that said, <laughs> who out there has who out there ha- has comments about Microsoft? Because I don't. Is everybody else? I never I never read it. All right. Ah. So Glenn's in the in the Lex Freeman camp. <laughs> <with me. laughs> it's funny because it was well. Here's the thing. I'll, here's my comment: is I moved to Seattle in 1993, and it was you know thought of as a bit of a Boeing town then, and Boeing was the big engineering culture, and there are no books that have entered the popular kind of consciousness about Boeing as a company. There are books about it, plenty of them, but Boeing was full of engineers. There are tens of thousands of engineers, uh, you know, civil engineers and and um, all kinds of other, you know, avi- avi- uh, aeronautics and so forth. And they made huge amounts of money. They had great salaries. They sort of set a bit of the Seattle culture. And then we had the dot-com infection uh, when Amazon <laughs> arrived. And that, that grew and has expanded to cover all uh, available landmass, um, but Microsoft was there in the middle. You know, there was a local guy and another local guy who came back, and they had their sojourn in the wilderness and came here and founded a company and uh, and built it up. And so when I got here in '93, we were we there were 
I don't know how many thousands of Microsoft employees. There's almost 100,000 now worldwide. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, Microsoft kind of hit too close to home. I was like, I'm living in this milieu. Everybody around me is working for Microsoft, and mm -hmm. I'm kind of not in that field. So I never, I never read it because I felt I was in it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's my perspective. The book is kind of notable <laughs> because it sort of posits that you can not have boundaries between your work life and your social life. That if you do it, mm -hmm. that you can basically just have one seamless sloshy thing where everything is somehow innately fulfilling. And <laughs> so I think it was one of the building blocks of the myth of, um, you know, rewarding, fulfilling start startup culture and quote unquote work life balance, because Copeland essentially spins this fairy tale that you can find a job and a company full of people who will automatically be your best friends, and you can find romantic fulfillment that way too. And I think a lot of people were really beguiled by by that idea because it's oh, it's like college, except in we I get a paycheck. Yeah. I read this book in 1995, shortly after I moved to Seattle. <laughs> oh, I want to hear more. And right, right, I'm working at Microsoft right now, but I've only been doing that for about a year. But I was also working at Microsoft in 1996 oh. or so. Actually, no, 1995. I was uh, doing Microsoft technical support for the launch of Windows 95. It, it was part of my job to answer the phone and say, hi, thanks for calling Microsoft technical support. What kind of program do you have a problem with? And then when people told me, I would then try to route them to either the Visual Basic engineers or the Microsoft Bob engineers, depending on where people's problems were. And I got to say, I never thought Microsurfs felt accurate at all. Mm. Like, for one thing, it describes a Microsoft where everybody uses Macintoshes for everything, which is not my experience. <laughs> but also just the degree to which everybody lives Microsoft in the book and w lives with the people they work with. Yeah. Drastically overstated in my experience. <laughs> Having said that, it's super fun for me to read it now because Copeland did a lot of research on the area, clearly, because he's talking about the fries over there. And I'm like, yeah, that fries is still over there. It's awful now. Or there's one line where he says, Microsoft is so huge, they have 25 buildings. And that's 20 years ago. Now, I, I work in a building labeled a, because they ran out of numbers is my theory. It's just, <laughs> I'm basically on the main campus, but it's still incredibly huge and you never see anything on the other side of the campus. So I, I at this point to me, it's a historical look at the size of Microsoft 20 years ago. <laughs> it's like a recruitment pamphlet from back in the yeah. day. And, and then partway through the book, they all leave Microsoft anyway. And yeah. I always feel vaguely let down by that because Clearly, to me, Kuplin doesn't really care about Microsoft. He cares about Silicon Valley nerds. And he just yeah. wanted to start some up in Microsoft, then get them down to where he cares about as quickly as possible. They also have like a cult of personality around Bill Gates. Because remember, he writes the book around the time that Bill Gates got married to Melinda. And there's a lot of fixation on that, too. So they, there's a sort of Bill Gates. He's this, you know, he's a combination of patron saint and supervillain in their in their minds as well, which I thought was a, a weird choice. But I guess <laughs> sort of... That's not entirely inaccurate. I mean, no, no. He has I'm a wondering... giant house that looks a bit like a supervillain lair. Oh my god, really? And, and well, I mean, he's super rich and he has a house of the future. So you know, why wouldn't you? But also, I have heard people say, 
I saw Bill on campus once. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Which, you know, why wouldn't he? I'm sure he's got an office here somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say right off the bat, I am not a Douglas Copeland fan. I this is this is the only Douglas Copeland book I've liked. And <laughs> and I would say dramatically overstated is a good description of almost all of his work. <laughs> um, but for all that, when this came out, I avoided it like the plague because I'm like, oh, it's Copeland. And at the time, I guess it was 96, I was doing a lot of driving trips on consulting things. I'm driving around and, and I would listen to audiobooks in the car. It was a very, it was a nice way to pass six hours while driving straight on an interstate. And the audiobook of this was written by, uh, written, performed by Matthew Perry. And I thought, okay, you know, it's abridged. If I don't like it, at least Matthew Perry will be amusing. You know, there wasn't anything else at the store that really appealed to me. So I'm like, all right. And uh, I, I wound up enjoying it. So I went and got the book so I could get all the bits that I missed since it was abridged. Um, and yeah, I mean, going back to it now, it's like, oh, yeah, it's actually not very good either. But um, I basically liked the setup of it. I mean, at the time, I was thinking, you know, this would make a really good TV show. Um you know, the, the, the framework is there. And I mean, for obvious reasons, they got Perry to do the, the voice. So it's like, well, all right, that makes sense. Um, we should say for those youngsters out there who are listening to us, <laughs> old people talk about old things. Matthew Perry, one of the stars of the 90s sitcom, huge hit sitcom Friends. And of course, the Friends were participants in um, launch promotional video for Windows 95. So there, oh, so could there be a better person yeah. to narrate? <laughs> You of course, you of course know Matthew Perry as the star of The Odd Couple. <laughs> sure, no, you probably don't. No, Studio Sixty on the Sunset Strip. Oh, there you go. Nope. Go on. <laughs> I'm out. Ooh. You yes, mean Mr. Dude. Sunshine? You mean Mr. Sunshine? Is what you're talking I liked about. Mr. Sunshine Mr. actually. Sunshine, yeah. yay! Um, but yeah, ten years later, Copeland came out with a book called J Pod which was basically this book kind of rewritten except with different, you know, different names and a different software thing that they're working on, but it's pretty much the same thing and it wasn't anywhere near as good. Uh, but they did turn that into a TV show, which got canceled. <gasps> oh no. <laughs> until Silicon Valley could people. Uh... Yeah. Silicon Valley and halt and catch fire. Mm. Well, that, ties into Tracy Kidder's Soul of a New Machine, so we can get to that yeah. in a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I did like the subplot about all the nerds suddenly becoming really into physical fitness. Oh, God, that was so funny. Mm. <laughs> it's, it kind of predicted Tim Ferriss, in my opinion. And body hacking, because they spend oh, a lot on. of time on uh, the data. My Apple Watch is telling me to stand up. I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I will say, he, he does... Uh, uh, I mean, he, basically, this book is in blog format before blog was a word or weblog was a word. And and they're working on a software thing that's basically Minecraft, yeah. you know. So so it's it's a little predictive. It's just not as predictive as I think it thinks it is. Mm. Yo, exactly. And quit using the Chicago font. 
Oh, God. Ugh, what yeah. are you doing? <laughs> that, well, see, that says 1990s like nothing else, because when you're on your Mac with a stupid little cow dog or whatever it's called. Dog and, cow. Uh, thank you, dog cow. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to insult your dog cow, Jason. And, you know, you open oh, my up. My dog cow. His name is Claris. <laughs> He's okay. part dog, part cow, but he's not my dog. You cow. open up like your your text document, and it was always the default font. So you would it was your teeth you defaulted to Macintosh, but in 1986, I'm not sure in 1995 that was in my the university case. computer lab. It sure was. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that struck me while reading Microsurfs is there's a point where they get their own URL. And it's OOP.com. And the whole time I'm thinking, now that's probably more valuable than your ridiculous <laughs> software product you're yeah. working on. This episode of The Incomparable is brought to you by FanDuel. This is not a duel between two uh, Victorian gentlemen with tall hats and little fans that they normally use to wave uh, air at themselves. Instead, it's fantasy sports. It is American football season. It's also European football season, but I'm not talking about that right now. I'm talking about the NFL. I'm talking about FanDuel Fantasy Football. It's weekly fantasy football. FanDuel is the trusted leader in one week fantasy football. If you haven't signed up for a traditional season-long fantasy football league, guess what? It's not a problem. FanDuel's leagues are week by week. You drop in for a week, you pick a bunch of players using a salary cap, and then you see how well you do. It's easy to build a team, and then you sit back and watch how your team does across the season. I uh, tried this out a few weeks ago. Uh, it works really well. It's very simple. I enjoy the challenge of assembling a team under a salary cap because you can't just pick the famous stars. You have to try to balance your roster. I think it's very clever. So here's what you need to do. Go to FanDuel.com, F-A-N-D-U-E-L.com. Click on the microphone in the upper right-hand corner. Use the code INCOMPARABLE and sign up now. And for new users, every dollar you deposit will be matched by FanDuel up to $200 that gets earned as you play. Offer is only good for the first 50 people that use the code INCOMPARABLE. So sign up today. That's FanDuel.com, where every day is a new season. F-A-N-D-U-E-L.com. Dot com. Think of those Victorian gentlemen with their fold-out paper fans uh, at dawn. F-A-N-D-U-E-L dot com. Sign up today using code incomparable. Thank you to FanDuel for sponsoring the incomparable. My husband covered Halt and Catch Fire for previously TV. And so that meant that by marital proxy, I got to see every episode that's ever been made of Halt and Catch Fire. And um, as I, I read Soul of a New Machine after that, and I was like, wow, I really wish I had flipped the order because... Once you read Soul of a New Machine, and it walks you through the, the, the engineering cultures of the time, and what the stakes were, and the egos involved and all of the steps, then the entire TV series from AMC makes so much sense. <laughs> Why didn't AMC like send out copies of this and go, look, read this, and then watch the TV series? I mean, only 186,000 of you tuned in nationwide, we could have sent you all copies. <laughs> but... um <laughs> My friend Cliff was right. It really is kind of the urtext for, for the nerd books in the 90s because it uh, it documents, I think, sort of a cultural shift like and not on a um, not on a money level, which is actually how Tracy Kidder starts the book. But it, it documents it in the sense of this is how people began to engage in their work and this is what the stakes were and this is how it leaves them in the end. And uh, that's the thing I find interesting about all these books in the 90s is all of them ask in some way, shape or form, how is this aggressive use of technology changing the way that we interact with our environment and the people that we know in it. I think one of the interesting things about that book um, in particular is that 
it really is not about technology, of course, right? Like it is. It's a really good bit of research book, but his books are so deeply about people. And I think – I forget if all the technology description in there is accurate. I remember reading some things about that uh, later, whether he got the nuance right about like the security. There's this whole thing about rings of security. They were building these like in, you know, sort of concentric circles and so forth. And But um, you know, I think I've read four – I want to say I've read four of his books. Sort of House came after that, which is really interesting. Um, and Hometown, which is about uh, a town in western Massachusetts and um, just the way he – dives into people's lives. Um, my, my Glenning backstory that I, have, I didn't realize this is I was reading um, – something came up with Tracy Kidder and uh, Jessman West, who's the internet's librarian, lives in Vermont. Um, very well-known commodity. Probably everybody knows her. And uh, she used to live in Seattle and she makes some reference to Tracy Kidder. I'm like, how do you know Tracy Kidder? She's like, well, my dad is the guy in the book. Mr. West. I'm like, oh, he's like, Tracy Kidder used to come in our house and he slept downstairs on the couch every weekend while I was working on the book for years. I'm like, oh, how was that to be around? And, you know, he did, he put this, the kind of thing, like, he put the work in to understand people. So it wasn't this, like, I'm going to fly in and learn a little bit about the industry and do some interviews and write a book. It's like, he lived and breathed this whole thing and lived with them through it. So um, you can tell when someone is contemporary with the events. Like there's that book. Uh, it's called was it, uh, the great the the great year. What's the book about the uh, the big year? The, uh, the big year. And I saw the movie, which I quite liked. It's kind of benign, but it's good. And then I read the book, and the book made me confused because I thought, did this guy pick right and pick the right people to follow? And then I found out later he went through and interviewed everybody like a couple years after it happened. So it's a reconstruction and you could tell something wasn't right. It was good. It wasn't a constructed narrative. It's apparently pretty accurate. But Soul of a New Machine, he he dove in there. And so you get this sense of what it's like to be working, you know, people in those days. I don't think people were used to reading books about Mm -hmm. people working 24 hours (laughs) at a time. (laughs) And, you know, 24-7 didn't mean anything to people. And so um, I remember when I read it, I think first in the late 80s maybe, uh, just being, you know, it was a little more familiar. You by then, it was sort of more familiar what the culture was. But um, but I think it introduced people to what this was all about. It's funny that you mentioned uh, people hadn't read stuff like this before uh, about these sort of things. I I got the sense in looking at the books in this group that I looked at that um, the story we've got here in some ways is – stories told as being kind of crazy and unique like oh you won't yeah. believe what the computer people are doing yeah. that from today's perspective you're like well of course they are like yeah. <laughs> including, including the working right it's like you won't believe the effort that these people put into making their computers and now it's like well that's what the computer people do that's like that's like <laughs> yeah. what work is now and yeah. and and but then it was novel and now it's not and when we get to cuckoo's egg it's it, i think that's true of things like computer security too yeah um that it seems all strange and different in this like it's the internet. Let me explain how that works. But in the end, uh, you know, from the perspective of, of twenty years later, it's uh, it, it's like, yep, that's 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 not special. That's just normal. Yeah. Part of the moral of Soul of a New Machine is that this guy, you didn't think he did anything, but he was a great man because he motivated everybody to work twenty hours a day and give up their social lives. <laughs> yeah, he and lied we, to them. Yeah. He, he had to deal with the other prospective employers in the town that they wouldn't hire them away. Yeah, and reading oh that God. now, I'm like, these guys were really being taken advantage yeah. of. Yeah. No, it's now that you mentioned Jessamine West, uh, 
Glenn, there's actually a really great piece she wrote about all of the technology traps and pitfalls that she's run into since her dad died because he's had some he he had some really arcane automated home security systems oh, set up <laughs> that she that she's had to figure out how to debug and getting into his computers has been and and dealing with his digital ephemera has has been just like eye rollingly mind bogglingly difficult. I'll have to dig up the piece because I read it and I thought. Oh my God! This is something we're all going to have to deal with. <laughs> it's, it's so it's the cross of house and soul of a new machine. She's dealing with the soul of an old house. Yeah. Oh, uh, can I briefly mention about soul of a new machine? There is a living computer museum in Seattle that has one of the machines they're building in this book, along with a bunch of other old nonsense like Altairs and PDPs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have I have not gone to play with them yet, but I'm going to someday. I like how you refer. We we just talk about this book, which is basically oh, and here's how he motivated people to work crazy hours, and this was their life's work that they poured blood, sweat, and tears into. And then you dismiss like another undocumented group of people and their life work is oh, it's a bunch of nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) This is my problem with the very hungry caterpillar at the end. I'm not the very hungry caterpillar. The mixed up, uh, the the mixed up chameleon at the end. It's like he gets the fly, but don't you feel the? I feel bad for the fly. Well, Lisa, you read this book. Name mm-hmm. the computer they're working on. The oh. focus of everybody's lives. <laughs> they didn't. They they name it at the very. They rename it at the very end because it's uh, the eclipse. It's um, the eagle first, isn't it? Right. Yes. Yeah. Nice. To be honest, I had never heard of it in the wild. Although, in my defense, like this was all taking place back before computers uh, entered the Schmeiser household growing yeah, it's, up. <laughs> it's not a historically important computer at all. No, except no, that it's, it's in this book. Although what did really amuse me when I first started reading it is when um, I first started learning about computers as an elementary schooler, my parents had both worked with computers in the 60s and 70s. And what they had said very solemnly, well, there are computers and they live in rooms because they're just so big and they require so much processing power. And there are mini computers. But the thing that's really exciting are microcomputers. And they had that very (laughs) careful gradation of size. And as I was reading this book, I thought to myself, because I was reading it on on my laptop computer with my phone next to me. And I thought, my phone, what, what would you call that? A nano computer at this point? It's it's impossible. You know, the, com- the computers have gotten powerful and smaller. And But at one point, this was the, the, the reigning paradigm was computers take up rooms, mini computers, maybe not so much. And then micro computers will sit on people's desks. And it's very exciting and empowering. <laughs> right. Oh, I, I remember standing at the Air and Space Museum with an iPhone in my hand and the 13-year-old, who was younger at the time, looking from the, the iPhone to the space capsule and to the iPhone <laughs> and to the space capsule and a little plaque that says, this is how much computing power the space huh. capsule had. And it was less than like a Timex Sinclair, which, you know, what's in my hand is infinitely larger and bigger uh-huh. and, you know, and, and he it blew his mind. Yeah, yeah. it's... Uh, it's it's stunning when you think about how much casual computing power we have at our fingertips. Um, you know, and the, these books are also a really handy reminder of how far we have come and how fast in, in a comparatively short time. They still seem to load slow, though. That's the thing. Even after. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's there so it doesn't blow our minds with new paradigms. Right. It actually ran at full speed. <laughs> it took me five minutes to turn on this magical box. Oh. <laughs> All this computing power, and we spend it uh, making podcasts. That's yeah. Monty George Jetson <laughs> Ashley is the uh, – I pushed Shame. the button twice today. <laughs> Jane, how do you stop this crazy stop this update? crazy thing. Yeah. <laughs> 
let's talk about hackers. Yeah. Stephen Levy. <laughs> I, have I, I, have, I, have, I have fond memories of reading this book on uh, a trip I took to New York when I was in grad school. So I remember like riding the train from out of New York City to White Plains, and I was reading Hackers by Stephen Levy. And I don't know why wow. that place is it in 1993, I guess. So I hope, I hope I you were reading book. it on a dial-up connection to Prodigy, though. That would, be uh, well, that would have been fitting. Well, well yes. I, my, my order for my first uh, – no, no, I had just taken delivery of my first uh, laptop, my, my, my PowerBook. Oh God! I remember the I just, ads that I had just gotten. Um, so, so Stephen Levy, uh, who now writes for Medium, I guess, and maybe, then pre- maybe sure. I guess, <laughs> sure, and, that's right. And the ads are good. Um, <laughs> and then before that, worked at Wired and Newsweek, um, and has written many, many books about uh, technology. I think this is his first. Oh gosh, 1984 it was written. I didn't yeah, realize it was that yeah. long ago. It's, yeah, I read it in grad school as part of a Holy course cow. that we did on culture and computers. Yeah, so this this is uh, this is the the heroes of the computer revolution and it is definitely the the old the old days. The old days of computers, and and uh, I have to say that that uh, in looking back at it, um, it's not as uh, as compelling a story as uh, Levy's books since have been. Um, so I think he was still getting his feet wet as a as a writer, and some and honestly, some of the subject matter is kind of esoteric. There's a lot of love for there's a <laughs> yeah. lot of love for MIT hackers, and there's a lot of Richard Stallman at, at points. And, and that guy, How does that make there was feel? a lot of Richard Stallman. At there the was time. a lot of Richard. That's Stallman. true. <laughs> I, I find it interesting that so much of uh, some there, there's so much emphasis on the Massachusetts nerd corridor in a lot of these early books, and um, I find it interesting, especially when you consider like how much modern computer culture popped up out of the west coast you yeah know? like there's a brief mention of the well but oh i'm trying to remember there was a what's the reason was that mentioned in there was a reason why all that was going on in the in the what do they call that the ring road the route 128 around uh yeah around boston it's an east coast bias thing you know stephen levy's from massachusetts and no but uh, a lot of, there was wang or digital <laughs> equipment corp there were a bunch of companies sure, that were sure. all in well, that that's why idg was i mean that idg yeah. and pat mcgovern stuff i mean they 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 made great hay on the fact that there were these big computer companies right. in the 60s and 70s with mainframes and on all of that out in the massachusetts area right. that's ibm why was there. armonk and uh and poughkeepsie and so forth yeah wasn't xerox out there too yeah, Xerox was in Xerox was in Armonk, I think, right? I think it so. was uh, upstate New York. Uh my my grandfather worked for IBM during the war, you know. Uh sorry. Uh, but yeah, I don't but I'm trying to remember if it was it wasn't like the military economy. I'm trying to remember why there was a reason. There was a reason though it was happening there, but I can't remember why. I don't know. I'm going to go with East Coast uh media bias. I yeah. think East Coast media bias is a handy is a handy. I'll I'll just wave your hand and say dismissively East Coast media bias. Well, no, there were no many computer companies like in California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no. At this the time. is this That's is I think interesting about how we think of technology today is that in these early days in the 70s and 80s the 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 balance had not tipped to Silicon Valley, right? This was No. And it balance. hadn't really tipped to software when you think about it, it was still right. hardware yeah. innovation. Yeah. Well, like in for people who haven't read it, Hackers contains the story of the first people to actually try to make money selling software. And it turns out to be Ooh. Bill Gates and Paul Allen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so Levy's book, there's a lot of this kind of stuff that is completely foreign even to me. I mean, I first got access to a, a, a VAX system at UCSD in 1980, the fall of 88. So I had never – so th- this stuff, um, the early sort of 70s, early internet – Early terminals 
Um, and, and all of that was, com- is a complete, you know, it's way before my time. And it's sort of fascinating. These are the people for whom there was no platform to build on. They were kind of building the platforms and you got, and there's stories in there about the homebrew computer club, which of course famously is, uh, you know, Steve Wozniak was a part of, and they're building circuit boards. And, uh, you know, I would have been a terrible computer nerd in the seventies because I don't know how to solder things. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. I think it's really interesting to think about the fact that a lot of computing culture came out of model railroad nerds. Yeah, yeah. isn't that crazy? Well, they were building controllers. Yeah, there were the two kinds of railroad nerds, the kinds that like the stuff above the table, perfect little models of trains and, and trees, trees, and the guys <laughs> who like the stuff below the table <laughs> where you had to figure out how all the intersections would work and they got to rewire things all night. This might, you know, I was in a computer club in 1979 uh, because uh, there was a computer store not far from my house and they adopted me because I was such a giant nerd uh, for a while. And that's where I got my Ohio Scientific computer from and they sold apples and so forth. And all the guys, they were much, you know, older there from their, I was a teenager, they were their 20s to their, you know, 50s or 60s. And there was a lot of hardware stuff. And I remember like, you know, one time they're trying to figure out some of this dynamically refreshing RAM, this super cool new thing. There was something wrong. We were writing machine code to try to figure it out there was one bit that was broken so it would flip from zero to one and it wouldn't be able to refresh so we had to work around it like that was the kind of stuff you were doing in 1979 even as a kid i was like it was it was fun and you had soldering irons and you know you're working in assembly and things like that it was very down to the you know the metal anytime there's a potential for physical destruction it's exciting yeah burn things yeah computers don't catch on fire like they used to you know Another really interesting thing in Hackers is the is the software story, um, especially, uh, and, you know, warms my heart, uh, Sierra Online, one of the yes. first computer gaming and ke- uh, companies in Ken and Roberta Williams from their, their redoubt in, what, Coarse Gold or, uh, or uh, where it's up in the foothills. There's like a couple places that they, that they incorporated uh, near Yosemite, uh, not too far from where I grew up. And that's where Sierra Online was. And yeah. they made Ultima and... Uh, and uh, a whole bunch of other games. And Oakhurst was the famous, I think, incorporated location. Oakhurst, California. And, and I think that was Levy trying to get away from the MIT I think so. focus. Because he could have, if he needed a game company, he could have written about Infocom. But that's mm-hmm. a bunch of MIT guys. Another, yeah, another group of <laughs> MIT guys. Oh, those MIT guys everywhere. Ugh. So oh. instead, they, you know, they talk about Sierra Online and... Uh, and uh, some other stuff like that, which was which was fun because I play actually played those games, and so to see those people trying to make it, and again, software in those days was problematic, just like it is today. Piracy was a thing then, is a thing now. Again, saying a lot of the issues that come up in these books, we we nod knowingly and are like, yes, that would continue to be an issue to the present day. Maybe not so much the catching on fire, yeah. but like piracy <laughs> is a good example. I love this book. Really enjoy the many kinds of weirdo that led to current community <laughs> culture i do mm. wish there was more california in it the people at berkeley i think especially because of the well did more to influence how the internet thinks now than yeah i think the you're people right. that built the computers but there's only so much you can stick in a book that's a really interesting insight, Monty, the idea that the people who kind of operated on top and used the tools did more to influence it than the people who actually built the tools. So a book like Where Wizards Stay Up Late, which wasn't in the in the charter for this, the Katie Hafner, Matthew Lyon book, that that is the that is a good origins of the internet book. Um and there there are a bunch of other 
other sort of similar similar books. But I think you're I think you're right about that. This is a dense book. Um, yeah. Lots. It's there's a lot. I, my paperback. It's like the type is not very big, and there are a whole lot of pages. So there's a whole lot of different stories of 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 this history. All right. Uh, can I talk about the cuckoo's egg? Please. I yeah. love that book so oh, much. Yeah. <laughs> so I I do too. I love Me the too. cuckoo's egg. And when we <laughs> had the chance to revisit it here, I mm-hmm. jumped at the chance to go back and reread it. I don't reread a lot of books. But it helps that I've forgotten everything that happened in it. So I got to be I got to enjoy that story again. For those who haven't read it, the cuckoo's egg it's a mystery. Essentially, it's a mm-hmm. it's a mystery story of a guy. It's Cliff Stoll. He's a Berkeley hippie. He rides his bike to work uh, at, up a hill to the Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory. He's an astrophysicist who's basically just doing this as a day job in between star gigs. Yeah, they they, they basically <laughs> lost. They didn't have an astro uh, uh, um, an astronomy job for him, and so they tra- to keep his job. They transferred him to do IT, even though he was not really an IT guy. And there were the two kind of like stuffy IT guys in, at the Lawrence Berkeley Lab. But they they let him. You know, they let him. He knew he knew a little bit about uh, computers. He was a computer like enthusiast and he also knew astronomy and so it was not a bad combination but very early in his time uh as an it guy at lawrence berkeley lab they they find a 75 cent discrepancy on uh their accounting system which leads him to discover that there's been a hacker creating accounts in their in their uh computer and then using the their accounts to tunnel to other parts of essentially the internet and uh, this unfolds into uh, a story that's told across different states and different countries and gets the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, and most terrifyingly, the German Postal Service yes. involved <laughs> in investigating what's going on. And there's this hippie, this anti-authoritarian hippie is is like... I would normally have nothing to do with any of you, but I just want to do the right thing here. And he gets crap from his friends who are like, yeah. why are you Why are hmm. you meeting with the CIA, man? This guy, yeah. this hacker guy, he's just looking around. He's cool. Yeah. And- I, at this point in computing history, everybody felt, well, not everybody, a lot of people felt, passwords are wrong, man. Yeah. yeah. Everything <laughs> should be everything, man. <laughs> well, a lot and- of it was government funded or grant funded. So yeah. this gets to like the JSTOR argument today involving mm-hmm. Aaron Swartz and all that is like, if all this is being funded by public funds, then the public was, has a right to it. Yeah. Like yeah. what's being yeah. locked away? What's being kept secret unless it's, you know, super secret government stuff. And then you have, uh, you know, the war games slash real genius scenario. Right. Yeah, well, I just think mm-hmm. it's interesting that some of the very same people that were keenly in favor of everything being open at the time have made a 180 degree turn to being very into cryptography. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like actually everything's about privacy. We were wrong. New plan. <laughs> no, but it flips, it flips it around, though, because the cryptography is to protect you from the government, not yeah. to protect you from – not protect the government from you. Uh-huh. Oh, I don't think they made a fundamental philosophical change, but their tactics are oh, – yeah. have changed Much from different. we don't need passwords to we need – impossible to break passwords <laughs> what i really love about this book is how effortlessly he weaves in his whole happy berkeley hippie existence like <laughs> yeah. the day he shines off work to go listen to the grateful dead by parking himself on a hillside and just like <laughs> taking in the concert for free and there's like a chapter that ends with his chocolate chip cookie recipe and there's like <laughs> an interlude in a future chapter where he's like making his wedding shirt while thinking about work and I, just... I like the moment i laughed out loud and couldn't stop the, there's the moment where he uh, his shoes are wet so he decides 
decides to dry them in the microwave, which melts the <laughs> yes. shoes and creates a cloud of smoke. And he throws it, uh, throws the shoes in the glass of the microwave out onto the driveway, which shatters. But then he's going to try to fix it all. So he puts some vanilla on the stove and while he's cleaning, but he <laughs> forgets that he's got the vanilla. So then that burns. And he decides as an apology to his girlfriend, he's going to bake her some cookies, but the cookies slide off of the cookie sheet and onto the bottom and they burn. And this is the state that she finds him in. And it's just, it's it's very funny. Also, if you work at, the, at Lawrence Berkeley Lab, you're right uphill from the Greek theater. If the Grateful Dead are playing, you're going to be listening regardless. You might as well go outside. <laughs> yeah, that's where he was. Is he has He's like, it was a beautiful evening. There's the fog coming in. And it just sounded like such a great life, you know? It's a, it's a really well-written book because he combines being extremely technical at spots with being extremely endearing. Yes. Yes. Like, no, he's, there's so much personality in this book. He's a great character of, of this book. I mean, because this is a mystery story. He's the investigator. You've got this. You couldn't write a better story, right? It is It is this this shaggy, hippie guy. He, he He's a Berkeley guy, but he also is a scientist, and he understands this stuff. And he's dogged in pursuit of this. And he knows that the person is doing something wrong, even though a lot of the culture says it's okay. He knows that something is going wrong here. And it leads him down this path where, where you know, you know, he's got all of the the nice things about his character that that his you know his his girlfriend and their roommate and and they come up with a whole crazy plot while while taking a shower and it's Operation Showerhead <laughs> and, and all this great stuff and yet and then also you've got the mystery. I mean, you, it's such a it's such a great combination and it says so much about the period where he's like literally calling up law enforcement and saying, "Hey, there are people from like we don't know where breaking into." government things and doing searches for for uh for nuclear weapons and the star wars program and things like that and the response is are they stealing money well then we're not interested computer yeah. crime that's not a thing <laughs> why did you put those two words together strangely you can still have that conversation with law enforcement today is the amazing well part. so yeah. the more things change the more they stay the same i thought i was struck by that that there's still a question of who are the police of of the internet and the answer is there kind of aren't any and although the ta- the tactics have changed the the attitude that law enforcement often has i he finds sympathetic people but even with the, the sympathetic people he finds are more concerned about using him to prove a point which is that there are people uh, that security is bad. Like, I I love the fact that he keeps talking about these systems that all ship with with no passwords or default (laughs) passwords. Like, Mm -hmm. that's out of the box. They come with fully privileged system administrator accounts with a stock password. And unless you change it, um, somebody can just get in. So that's bad. But what's even worse is there's a part of the book where uh, somebody at the, I think the, the, the Air Force talks to somebody at an Air Force base and basically says, change all the passwords. And six months later, uh, he finds that there's a break in there. And the guy's like, I told them to change the passwords. They just didn't do it. Well, and then you but then you have every router in America. I'm sorry, every router in the world yeah. ships with a password admin. You find things like all the voting machines in America by some company have the password one, two, three, four. It's never been changed. Yep. The TSA <laughs> holds up pictures of or holds up keys for a photograph of all of their master <laughs> luggage keys. Like nothing has changed. Yeah. The Ashley Madison hack from what I read happened because their system password was pass1234. Oh, oh my god. Wow. And that's a company whose entire <laughs> business model is 100% data security. Yeah. <laughs> I really yeah, I I read Cuckoo's Egg a few times uh and I think I read it 
last a while ago, but I remember it very distinctly. I, w- I always liked him because he was uh, self-aware. I've read books like that. Like you read um, the John Markoff's uh, book, or he wrote it with uh, uh, Tsutomo Shimomura, which was right, let's see, it was a few years later. That was a takedown about the Kevin Mitnick uh, sort of the thing there. And it was written, Tsutomo was the guy who helped take him down. And then Markoff came on to write the book. And there's a lot of questions about how particularly accurate the story is, whether Mitnick actually did you know, damages, all these things about, you know, what did he actually steal? He was doing social engineering, all that. But I think um, that book is very serious. And it's like, there's this guy and he's running and we're finding him. There's this relentless pursuer who's a genius. And it's like Cliff Stolbook is like, I'm this total goofball. And he knows and he revels in his own goofiness. He enjoys it. And he has those coming to God moments where he's, where you talk about where he, you know, he's like, what am I doing with law enforcement? Are people asking me, why am I pursuing this? So there's that nice amount of self-reflection that makes the book enjoyable. It gives you a position as a reader to have sympathy for him and also in, enjoy it. Um, but, I, I, you know, I don't know. I think it's that the story as a whole is you agree with him. That, like something is wrong here. Like, you know, there's something not right and it should be put correct, but it's very, very hard to make that happen. Yeah. And it helps that at the end you find out it's German hackers being paid by the Russian government. <laughs> yeah, it's a KGB. KGB are paying for secrets from these German hackers. And in a, in a fantastic twist, they set up... So one of the, my favorite things in the book is they set up this Operation Showerhead where they invent a character who's a secretary at LBL. They invent an entire division called <laughs> SDINet, which is a Strategic Defense Initiative. is the code for the Ronald Reagan Star Wars project. Um, so they set this all up. They create... I get the sense too that at this point he his he mentions it at a few points but like he is spending a lot of time on this cuz they invent dozens or hundreds of documents about SDINet just to create this honeypot um and and you know the the hacker seems interested at first he dumps some of the files you know he comes back a little bit later but seems to have lost some interest in it and then they get a letter for the fictitious secretary and they're like, what the hell just happened? And it's from <laughs> postmarked in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And it's from a guy with a Hungarian name. And it turns out that he's basically somebody that, you know, the KGB. Hack checker. The KGB calls somebody who calls somebody who sends, who, and they oh say, mail this letter. They hand him a letter and he mails the letter. Sign and mail this. And uh, yeah, they're checking up on this, on the secrets that are being sold to them. How, how crazy is that? And this is all just these hippies in Berkeley who are, or, uh, yeah. What Would a it great, be trippy great if we could, if we could like get someone in this snag called Operation Showerhead and then it happens and it's like, oh my God. <laughs> so um, another funny thing in this book is that one of the people he meets, one of the the uh, CIA guys he meets is a guy named Robert Morris, who basically sweeps him away, <laughs> sweeps him away, and takes him somewhere to meet this. And they get, oh, and he gets, he God. gets a, he gets like a certificate of appreciation. They're like, come on, the guy from Berkeley wants something. He's helped us out here, and all that. So, but he tells the story about like talking to this guy who's got all these questions about astronomy. He's obviously an astronomy nut, um, and and he gets the sense like there's always throughout this intimation like astronomy and dealing with the CIA that the keyhole satellites are floating in the background there. It's like nobody talks about the keyhole satellites. But like, imagine what if there was a Hubble Space Telescope pointed the other way? And he's like, well, that, oh, we'll say no more, right? So he, he, he talks to this Robert Morris guy and tells a story about about how he's a chain smoker and he, and he drives with the windows rolled up in the winter in, in Maryland and he almost dies in the car of asphyxiation from this. Um, 
and I and and you know, knowing it now, you realize what he's setting up, which is one of the last chapters of the book, and it's kind of not relevant to his story, but it's just too good not to put in the book. Is <laughs> that Robert Morris, his son, is the guy who did the first big internet worm and shut down like thousands of computers at oh, one point yeah. when he was in college, and so that at the end of the book, that story comes up, and it's really funny because he's like, you know, it's like it's it's that guy's kid who did this, and that guy's like he's a cybersecurity guy at the CIA. But his kid shut down half the internet with his uh, with the first internet war. Yeah, he sneaks it up on you because yep. it's the character. The father is, is called Bob Morris, Bob Morris exclusively. Yeah. And then there's a chapter where they know that this new worm is created by somebody named RTM, and they can't figure out who that is. Yeah, and Bob Morris is like, oh god, <laughs> it's Robert T. <laughs> Robert T. Morris Jr. <laughs> True story, uh, but so that's that's a crazy thing too. So I, yeah, I highly recommend this book just because it's fun. But but what's what's funny about it is that these issues, it's all different today, right? I mean, now we've got cryptography. The actions that people like the 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 hacker who Cliff Stoll is chasing are far more complicated today. They they but you know at the same time they're not that different. The tools are different. The tools are more sophisticated. But it's still a game being played today. It's just being played at a, a, a at a on a different board than it was back then. Yeah, yeah. It's um it's funny how much it seemed like. Well, that's a blip, and they'll fix it. I think even <laughs> in those days, I was like, well, this is sort of hilarious and inept, but, you know, it'll get better. And then the more I was working, you know, I started doing stuff on the internet in 94. I had my password file stolen and sent to me in 96 by somebody. And, you know, I've, oh, I had... Geez. Yeah, it was still encrypted. <clears throat> but, you know, it was taken and I had uh, some break-ins well, in which, those days. Which and, is something that happens in this book, is they don't know why they're stealing the password files and they realize they're doing a dictionary yeah, search. Yeah, offline of the password file and finding the single word passwords that match. Some of those passwords are probably still in use probably, in that file this many years later. Probably but yeah, but so. it's not it's just nothing got better. Everything got worse because none of the lessons learned at that time were ever really put into effect. There were no regulations and you know regulations don't work obviously by themselves, but it didn't become like standard practice. It wasn't a concern computer companies want to make things as fast as possible. Going back to the soul of a new machine is uh, you got to ship and you got to ship and security is something you do later, years later and uh, that's we're still paying the price. One of the biggest disconnect. I had to cover RSA this year, the security conference. And one of the biggest disconnects I had was I would sit in keynote after keynote, where you'd have C-level executives and CSOs and people who are troubleshooters and fight this stuff for a living saying, there is no technological solution. You have to work on human behavior. (gasps) And and then I would walk onto the show floor and Moscone East and West were both taken up with with nothing but vendors promising all manner of hardware and software solutions. Get your get your technological no, I, solutions. Here. I saw a commercial saying our kids will not have to worry about passwords at all. <laughs> well, you know what, what, the RSA thing, the the two, the 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 things that kept popping up over and over again were everyone kept saying we live in a post Snowden world. We have to assume that anyone anywhere can leak your information. That's that's your core assumption is that your systems are inherently unsafe because people use them, and that and then they'd move on to. The only thing you can really do is invest in human capital and human behavior, and you have to work on on behavioral training because technology can't do that for people. And yet I walked on the show floor and I thought, okay, surely there's some enterprising consultants or something who are like, we dispatch a team of nerds to brainwash your people into 
practicing decent security. No, it's all, you know, install this software and, and you can nanny your users this way. You can monitor that and you can block this and you yeah. can do that. You can and make if, them change their password to another 12 character password every two weeks. <laughs> That'll be high security. <laughs> if you look at if you, if you look at the cuckoo's egg, which, again, highly recommend. I think anybody would like yeah. it. It's oh, yeah. fun. Um, the 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 lesson I take away from it is it it it's it, yes it seems kind of like an innocent time and yet it also says that in the, in 1986 and 87 on the roots you know on the early internet um where there were you know people had PCs and Macs and stuff but the, so much was going on in these Vax and Unix systems that were out there Vax and VMS systems that all of all or most of the problems that we see today were already there it's just a matter of degree and that the world of the world is different and simpler in some ways uh back then it was um but it, it in other ways not different at all because these same issues dog us to this day about security about the people problems with security about insecure software being the fundamental problem um it's and uh, organizations being incapable of handling it and uh at several points they're like they just want to shut their their door to the hacker and they know the hacker will just find other ways in and they will lose their ability to to follow him and people and and you know the functionaries at these organizations are like i just don't, i'm just going to close the hole and move on with my life and it's like no 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 you can't but th- that and that you know that kind of stuff still happens today so on that level i think it's you know it's quaint technology wise but totally applicable to uh, the issues that the technology world faces even today, I think. Can we talk about a few other books briefly? Yes, before yes, we go, we, uh, let's talk about everything else that's in the, uh, that's in the cellar or the attic, wherever you keep your books about technology from the 80s and 90s. I can go fast yes. if you like. I, well, go for it, so the, the Media Lab uh, postdates uh, uh, Soul of a, of a New Machine and it uh, predates uh, uh, Microsurfs and, ha- and uh, uh, gosh, it's actually kind of in the middle there, I guess. Microsurfs is 95, uh, right? And Media Lab is 88. And uh, Stuart Brand, who is uh, best oh. known for the whole Earth catalog, right? The Media Lab, I remember reading this thing and it blew my mind in the late 1980s because it was about this incredible institute of the future in which, which sorry, the institute of the future is another thing, not the Media Lab. <gasps> Uh, oh, yeah. And so the media I had lab to was read like, this. Yes. Oh, yeah, I yeah. Read this. <laughs> and it's incredible. And it totally shaped and influenced my life because I said, this is what I want, more so than a lot of these other books. I read it and said, this is what I want. I want technology that's meaningful, that has an artistic component, that's something I can get my hands into and that could help change the world. And maybe it's just cool, but it's not about money. It's about doing things that are transformative. And then I was lucky enough after uh, college, I went to work for this division of Kodak called the Center for Creative Imaging, which was created specifically to be a little bit like the Media Lab without any resources. And that's a whole story. But I got to have a little taste of what it was like to be in a Camelot of like super creative artistic people coming together at an intersection of technology, culture, um, you know, art and business. And it was like, oh, you know, and that's something I've wanted to recapture, but I think the book is an incredible slice. And I just went to the Media Lab. I'd uh, never been there before. I visited it uh, with a friend who's a grad student there, uh, post no, he's a grad student, and uh, he gave me a tour around the whole place. And it's, you know, they have, it's bigger, it's very expensive, um, but it continues to further this mission. Um, and really, really interesting stuff continues to come out of it. Uh, it just winds up going often more quickly into um, commerce uh, than necessarily having an impact on culture. But it's still, uh, it's where a lot of ideas come. The Bitcoin, the guy who's the main guy behind Bitcoin now works at MIT because 
because his group at the Media Lab, because the group that was supposed to foster Bitcoin fell apart. And so Media Lab's like, hey, you come here with some other people. We'll do a cryptocurrency group and we'll just pay for your salary so we can keep Bitcoin software going. Wow. Um, so that was one. And just quickly, like Being Digital by Nic- mm-hmm. Nicholas Negroponte. I remember reading that. That's almost 20 years ago, which yep. is about, you know, it's the Media Lab, but this is eight years later. And he was the head of the Media Lab and, and drove it through its uh, tremendous growth. There's uh, what the Dormouth said, which is uh, Dormouth's said, which is uh, the subtitle is How the 60s Counterculture Shaped mm. the Personal Computer Industry. Mark off again. Mark off again, yeah. 2006. Mm. And it's a really lovely book. And Stuart Brand's in there and Kevin Kelly and all of these interesting people, um, you know, and Steve Jobs and all the people who founded companies. And it's a look at like a really legitimate look about how drugs and uh, new ways of thinking actually did open up vistas for people that led directly into stuff that was commercial. And the one thing I'll say about fake Steve Jobs, whose book I don't necessarily recommend reading, it's, it's not bad, is that I think his non his fictional book about Jobs actually cracked part of that code in a way that Dormouse is really the nonfiction version of how you take – uh, utopian ideals and mind expand, expanding, uh, you know, drugs and other stuff, and you turn it into something people can hold in their hand, and it has this effect on them as if they're part of it, even though it's just purely uh, an object. So that, those are my that's my range of books. I've got a book I'd like to throw in. Yeah, if people enjoyed hackers and want to really immerse themselves in these people, I really like the New Hackers Dictionary. Oh. Yes. Uh, the third edition, I think, is the last edition that was published as a book. It was edited by Eric S. Raymond, who I mentioned <laughs> because he was inexplicably nominated for Best New Writer for the Hugo this year, based on one short story. But it oh, is he, a, there's, it's not inexplicable, but that's not the scope no, of this yeah. podcast. That's <laughs> he found it inexplicable. He wrote one story. Yeah. Anyway, um, it has been, luckily, moved online, and you can just wallow in the ridiculous lingo of lots of different hacker subcultures. The sort of people who look at El Camino Real, a long road in California, and say, that's way too long to be a real number, and insist on calling it El Camino Big Num. Because that's the kind of number that can hold more digits. (sighs) (sighs) That's right. Bye. I like how we all decided that. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. It it is a great document of the hackers era people. Mm. The the only one I've got is um, back when I got the cuckoo's egg and soul of a new machine and all. The other one that I read was the hacker crackdown law and disorder on the electronic frontier by Bruce Sterling. I've got that one too. Bruce Sterling. I don't remember it at all. I think there was like a federal statute that Bruce Sterling had to be on everybody's bookshelf from 1990 (laughs) to 1999. That was about the big secret service attack that led to the EFF. And focused on the Steve Jackson games attack. I read a book that was kind of written in, attempted to be written in the spirit of the the books we were talking about. And it was one of the most depressing books I've written in a while. It was Scott Rosenberg's Dreaming in Code. Oh, I love that book. Mm. It's kind of depressing because you think about all of the work they went into it and they still don't have a complete product. And like in the (laughs) epilogue, he's like, well, I'm still using Google Calendar because I know these guys are smart and they worked really hard, but... <laughs> that book has, I think, the best explanation for non-programmers. I think a non-programmer could read the book and go, "Oh, this is why software never ships." I yeah. think. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's just it's just so depressing in a way because you're you're reading it and you're thinking about all of the people who have poured their time and their energy and their passion, and they just keep getting tripped up by oh like each other or you know things that are breaking in the code or people's endless quest for perfection. Like a lot of this book is about how perfect is the enemy of good. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it's 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 the kind of book where if it had come out like in the eighties or nineties, I think a lot of people are like, wow, those software engineers, hmm, they're they're kind of crazy, and my goodness. And now you read it, you're like, oh god, yeah, corporate life. <laughs> <laughs> but it was interesting because it really is written in the spirit of of the books from the eighties and nineties, and it's by Scott Rosenberg, who is one of who used to be like a really big bigwig over at Salon, and. Um, they were like way back in the nineties, they were kind of the spiritual successor to like the whole Clifford stole. We are hippies who just really love life and technology and things are cool, man, and be suspicious of authority. And I think Rosen, you, you have to look at how the, the tone Rosenberg took in shaping tech coverage from salon from like the mid nineties to the, to the mid oddies. And, and it's, it's very much tied into the books we've been talking about. I, uh, the only one I wanted to mention since we talked about Stephen Levy, um, and I, I said, yeah, Hackers isn't as good as I remember, although it's super dense. I will recommend, and you knew I would, Insanely Great Ooh. is a great story of the invention mm. of the Macintosh. Um, <laughs> What's it, that? It is a computer that? <laughs> that was used apparently by people at Microsoft in 1995. I don't really understand how that could be. But anyway, it, it's a... Uh, well, if, if, if you were Canadian. If you were, yeah, sure. Um, it's, a, it's a very, very good history of the creation of the Mac, which, which had lots of great stories. And then when you're done there, you can also read folklore.org, which has got a bunch of stories about that same era by the people who worked on the original Mac team. And uh, that got turned into a book that is called... What is it? Uh, oh, uh, it's called Revolution in the Valley, which is a, which is a version of that same that's Andy Hersfeld and company and their and their stories about inventing the Mac. So those are those are uh, fun books, and I, I like Crypto too by him, which is a an early cryptography book from uh, two thousand one about how cryptography works. Yeah. Can I can I mention one more thing? Sure. It's actually five more things. <laughs> well, so, all right. So the, the brief thing I'd say is that it's interesting to see how these kinds of books uh, come out today because you have books like Hatching Twitter by Nick Bilton, New York Times. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have uh, Long Tail, uh, Chris Anderson's from a few years back, but not that long yep. back. The Everything Store by Brad Stone. Um, Get Big Fast was the first big Amazon book in 2002. And I'm in a couple of those books, so I, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. glad where I'm glitting. But the uh, the thing that's interesting, is, and Owen Makers is another Chris Anderson book that I quite liked, which was kind of about the maker movement before Chris wound up having turned his own life from being an editor-in-chief of Wired to being the head of 3D Robotics, a drone-making company, um, which is a great story in itself. And uh, these modern books about it, uh, I feel like there's much less of people involved. Makers is an exception, but I think these books are so much business stuff going on. Everything mm. is happening at such an accelerated pace and everything typically involves billions of dollars or millions of items or a trillions of records. I was talking to a company of the day, a, a game company that does online uh, uh, League of uh, League of Legends. Le- League of Legends. They literally don't know how much data they collect every day. It's so huge. They have trillions of data points stored in databases. And so the scale is so big, it, I think it outpaces humanity and you read stories and I feel like there's less humanity in them because the the components have now become so big. And I want to read some more narrative nonfiction that's more like Soul of a New Machine that gets us back to the heart of people. What will they what books will they write about us? 
There's a oh, they're not the going to write books. It's going to be a series of tweets. Yeah. They might storify us. The great <laughs> <Yeah. what storifies. laughs> Everybody no. with a startup thinks they're going to be the next big thing, so they're already writing their book in their yeah. head. Uh, no. Yeah, well, in some cases, I've seen startups uh, do like commission a video documentary series about the creation of their startup just to <sighs> impress you with uh, how great they are. I worked at one startup mm. that made us assemble once every few months for a recitation of the creation myth. <laughs> oh my gosh, I just did a podcast episode on the Internet History Podcast, which, by the way, if you're interested in these sorts of things, yeah. uh, Brian McCullough has this series where he's interviewing people who were involved at the creation of stuff. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he's gotten some people who rarely talk publicly. And I don't think the podcast has gotten this massive amount of attention. Like, it's not like a million people are downloading it. But I think his goal is to create a kind of living history. And there are people who I've never heard interviewed before or very rarely that talk to him for, you know, 60 minutes or an hour and a half, a couple hours. Uh, and we just talked about this other day about creation myths at Amazon since I was there not at the creation but knew the people from – the start until, you know, when I left in 97 uh, and about all this, like the desk door and all those things. And, and we talked about all the stuff that was sort of either made up. And there's even things that Amazon denies when asked, said, no, it did not happen that way. And yet reporters still tell the story, even though they could come to other people outside like me who would confirm that, no, it did not actually happen that way. Well, so I hope everybody out there has enjoyed our co- our, our, our co-mingling of uh, things we talk about it on this podcast and other other places where we write and podcast technology and books and stories and they all kind of go back together so thank you lisa schmeiser for suggesting this as a topic i appreciate it i'm glad we did it well this is fun my pleasure i i would like to thank our uh, our, our other guests glenn fleischman thank you delightful david lore thank you very much Thank you. I've I've been having a wonderful chat over in the well while we were talking. <laughs> <laughs> and and Monty Ashley, you uh, spend your days at Microsoft, but somehow don't have a Mac at home. So what's wrong with you? There <laughs> is a Mac in my apartment. It's just not mine. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, then we'll give you, Douglas Copeland. will give you a pass for that. Uh, and thanks to everybody out there for listening. This has been the Incomparable. I've been your host, Jason Snell. We will see you next week. 